Hi there, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to my weekly Parsha Share. This week, the Share is sponsored by Michael and Maggie Baer, for, and uh, I'd like to thank them for sponsoring it in memory of Michael's father, Myron Baer, Yitzchok ben Eliezer, Zichrona Livrocha, whose yard site is on the 4th of Elul. The Neshama should have an aliyah, which should be Zechot Tzitchiyas Amesim. And thank you so much for being the sponsors of this week's share. Parsha Shoftim. It's a fascinating parsha. There's so much in it. And every year I have to, I have a problem. I have a real task choosing which Divrei Torah, which particular parts of the parsha I'm going to focus on. Of course, uh, over the past few months, I've been focusing very much on the Divrei Torah of my late grandfather, Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Dunner from his Sefer Mikdash Alevi. I always post the source sheets on SoundCloud and on YouTube and on my website, so you're able to download those, print them off, and you can uh, look at them uh, directly yourself. But hopefully you won't need to, you can just listen to the Divrei Torah and they're eminently repeatable. Let's begin with the first one in the Mikdash Alevi. So the parasha begins with the words, you shall appoint magistrates and officials, shoiftim and shoitrim, shoitrim may be police, policemen, a police force, bechol shorecho in all your gates. Uh, and the idea being uh, that in every city, in every place where there is a, where there's human settlement, where people live, there should be shoiftim, there should be judges, and there should be shoitrim, there should be people who are um, leaders, who are taking care of the needs of the local population. Um, these are settlements, these are areas of living that Hashem, your God, is giving to you. And uh, and they shall govern the people with the proper justice. They shall take care of you and uh, justice will prevail. Continue the psukim. I'm going to read you the first three psukim. Um, mishpat. You shouldn't judge unfairly. You shouldn't be partial to any of the litigants who may come, come in front of you for any kind of adjudication. And also, you shouldn't take bribes. If you're somebody who is in a position of power, you shouldn't allow any bribery to sway you one way or the other. For the bri bribery, blinds the eyes of the great um, scholar, the most knowledgeable person, somebody who knows the law backwards, could be blinded by material gain, which is bribery, and uh, could, uh, um, the actual translation is it somehow could distort the words of the righteous, but we know that Chazal translated it a little differently, uh, it could distort just words. In other words, the, the um, judgment, the verdict of those who have been bribed will be distorted as a result of the fact that the bribery has been received. Continues the next posuk, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirudayf, a beautiful posuk. Tzedek, justice, Tzedek, and justice, Tirudayf, should you pursue. Lemantichyeh, so that you may thrive, you may live. And occupy the land. That Hashem, your God, is giving you. Those are the first three psukim of Parsha Shoftim. Says the Mikdash HaLevi, beautifully put and beautifully derived. He makes sense of these first three psukim with a beautiful Dvatura that I know you're going to enjoy, and I certainly know that you are going to repeat. The Pashtas, if you look at this, if you would look at any Psukim which come one after the other sequentially, when we read these three Psukim, or you would imagine if you look at these three Psukim which follow one another, that each of the psukim is addressed to the same person or group of people. That is the way one would imagine it to be. Ulam. However, when you actually look more in a more granular fashion at what is being asked of those who are being given these instructions, 
That means these three psukim, if you think they're being addressed to the same person or group, and then you look at the instructions that they contain, what you're going to see, you'll see that the first posuk, that you should appoint judges and officials and leaders wherever you live, that seems to be directed at the group that we would refer to as the people, the ordinary folk. That's the first posuk. Each of them, every single member of Klal Yisrael and as a whole, are commanded and expected to choose leaders and judges that uh, are going to be suitable to make sure that there is law and justice in the places where they live. But the second posuk and the third posuk, quite different. If you look then at the following psukim, which ones? The psukim that say, You shouldn't distort the law. That's not referring to the general folk. That's referring specifically to those who dish out the law. The judges, those who are your leaders, those to whom you turn to come to some decision, some verdict with regard to a law that uh, may need to be interpreted or a court case that comes up in front of them. Loisate mishpat, don't distort the law. You've got to make sure that the law is adjudicated properly, efficiently, truthfully, etc. Tzedek, tzedek turdoif. You should pursue justice. Well, that's not referring to the people at large. That's referring to the specific group of people who are charged with making sure that the law is carried out. That's the judges. So the first posuk, and without any break, is referring to the uh, larger group of people. It's more a universal uh, audience. Whereas the second and third posuk has a more specific audience, becomes more particular, referring specifically to the adjudicators of law. So how do we understand that haketzad yisyashvu how do we make sense of the fact that they're all bunched together with no differentiation between the first pasuk and the second and third pasukim? The Nira Loima says the Mikdash Alevi. The specific reason why it's left in a kind of generic, in a grey area, is actually because the first pasuk, like the psukim that follow on from it, actually, you could interpret that posuk as being with reference to the judges, to the leaders, and as will be explained. Let's think about it. Think carefully. If you think about it, the word lecha is actually Extra, it's unneeded, it's unnecessary. What would have been missing? There would have been no change of context or meaning in the posuk, in the verse, if we would have missed out the word, uh, it would have been written as follows. Judges and leaders and officials guards, however you're going to refer to the word shaitrim, you should establish in every one of your settlements in the places that you live, in which case, why do we need the stress word, specific word, that seems to be pointed at an individual rather than at the group. From this we can learn. That this posuk is not referring to the group that we refer to as Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people. It is totally and utterly focused on the shofet, on the judge, on those who refer to them as the judiciary, themselves as the judiciary. to warn them. First and foremost, are you a judge? Are you a person who sits in judgment over others? Make sure that before you judge anybody else, you judge yourself. That you take care that you are crossing your T's and dotting your I's 
and you're being extremely careful with all your P's and Q's. And only after you have made sure that that's the case, then you can be in sit in judgment over other people, over the public at large. Now we can understand the posuk as follows. You, Mr. Judge, you, Your Honor, you, Dayan Hachoshuv, make sure that you put judges and guards and guardrails in any vulnerable place that you may have in your personality. Before you get involved in adjudicating other people's issues, make sure that you adjudicate your own, that you are a paradigm of perfection. You know what? There is something, each person has their own way of looking at things. They're not objective. Make sure that to the extent that it's possible in the human condition, that you are utterly objective, that you've removed any bias that you may have, that your behavior is exemplary. That you are the perfect candidate to sit in judgment over others. Don't allow your prejudices and all the things that feed into your opinions to, to be there when you have to make judgment and sit in judgment over others. And only after that, only after you have fortified yourself, are you able to conclude and complete your activity as a Dayan, as a leader? By the way, this applies to all of us. You're, a, you're watching this. You, you may be a leader in your workplace. You may be somebody that people come to for advice. You may be the leader in your family. You're a father. You're a mother. You're somebody who has a, a shalita. You have some type of control over other people's lives. Before you get involved in deciding things for other people, don't be a hypocrite. Don't allow yourself to make judgments over others if you haven't been as harsh on yourself as it is possible to be. When you feel that you have disciplined yourself in the way that you need to be disciplined, then you can, of course, dish it out to others. And you're going to do so on the basis not only of your own, uh, hopefully, perfection, but on the basis of your knowledge of what needs to be done, your wisdom and your judgment in general. But shoiftim v'shoitrim, the first posuk, is not directed, or the first part of the first posuk is not directed uh, to the public at large, it's directed to you, to the individual. And that's why it's written in the individual style. You, the judge. You, the leader. You, the person who has to make decisions that affects others. Make sure that all the decisions that affect you fit in with the way you may think that other people should behave. Because then you will surely judge the people in a just and righteous fashion. We'll move on to the second Vatorah. It's an interesting halacha. There was a form of idol worship, of pagan worship that existed at the time of the Torah called Asherah, where they would worship trees. They would worship the growth, the whatever it was, the agricultural growth, particularly trees. I'm guessing they were, they were very large trees very imposing, they were 20, 30 feet high, they were, you know, something that were very striking, and they would worship them, they would turn these trees into Avodah Zorah, into pagan objects of worship. So the, the Torah says, You're not allowed to plant such an Asherah, this type of tree, next to the Mizbeach. You know, it always disturbs me so much that when you look at the plaza, the large area of Harabais on which the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque stand, there's also, it's also full of trees. I always think of this posuk. In fact, I was once staying in the old city of Jerusalem for Pasha Shoiftim, 
And when we read this posuk, I looked up and you can see the trees. You can see the trees which above the top of the kotel, above the top of the kosel. I was thinking of this posuk. I was hearing it being read by the Balkore, who was reading from the Torah. It was Shabbos morning. I'm thinking, look at all these asheros that on Harabais. It was so disturbing to me that Harabais, you know, I know Rav Goran said, Harabais be yodenu. No, it's not in our hands. Because if it was on our ha- in our hands, there would be no trees that would be planted on the Harabais. Because it says so in the Posuk, But listen to what the Mikdash Halevi has got to say. You can learn a great ethical lesson from this verse. Haskel Nifla. It's an amazing ethical interpretation that can affect and have a profound impact on our lives. You know, occasionally from time to time. And I'm speaking, of course, you know, without mentioning anyone by name, all of you who are watching may relate to this, may, of course, not relate to this. But, you know, generally speaking, in the human condition, we're doing a mitzvah, we're doing, we're doing all the acts of the mitzvah, we're going about our mitzvah, Activity in the proper fashion in terms of the actual action itself. You know what? In our heart of hearts, I'm talking about our minds, our minds tend to drift. And uh, we have a little bit of attention deficit. And we're thinking about other things. You know what? The thing that we're thinking about, there's no relationship with a mitzvah that we are in the midst of performing. You know what you could say about that? You could say that it's absolutely the same thing as planting an asherah. Let's think about what the asherah is. It's, you know what an asherah is? It's a tree. You can look at the tree. You don't see any difference between that tree and any other tree. It's the same. It's exactly the same. It's just a tree. It's branches and it's leaves. The the difference is only in this kind of internal part of the tree. I mean, it's, it's hard to put your finger on it. You couldn't actually... There's no scientific difference. There's no practical difference between an Asherah tree and an ordinary tree. But there's something about it which is different because it's been designated as an Avodah Zorah. Beliboi Panima, internally... There's a grave flaw in this tree. If you look inside the tree spiritually, somehow, I don't know exactly how you would do it. There's no scientific test that you could carry out that could determine that this tree is Nasher. And nevertheless, that's what it is. And it's exactly the same thing with us. We're doing the mitzvah. Whatever the mitzvah may be, we're davening, we're saying the words out loud. Sometimes you're screaming out, You're saying Kedush at the top of your voice, you're singing, you're involved, you're shockling. To an outsider who's looking on, you look like anybody else who's davening with kavana. But in your mind, you're somewhere else completely. <laughs> so what are you? You're a bit of an Asherah, aren't you? Because you look like every other tree, but actually inside you're very different. It's something not quite right. Something's not working. This is something which is completely undermined by the reality of the internal workings. Because you know what you're doing? You're thinking about other things. You're thinking about everything else except for the thing that you're doing. So the mitzvah lacks that actual core, that essence which makes it the mitzvah. Even though it looks like the mitzvah, it's a bit of an asherah. It looks like the tree, but the asherah tree is in fact avoidazorah. Vechan nosim lev. Let's think very carefully. 
Let's put our minds to it. Do you know when the Asherah is considered the worst? The worst that it could ever be? If it's planted right next to the Mizbeach. I mean, Asherah is, a, is bad in all cases. But specifically the Torah wanted us to remember. So too similarly with what we've just been discussing. Let's, let's be real. We want to do the mitzvah and then we get distracted and we're not doing it properly. Not because the actual function of the mitzvah is not being carried out properly, but because what we're investing into the mitzvah is ruined by the fact that we've been distracted by the thing that isn't the mitzvah and which has nothing to do with the mitzvah. The asherah that's in you actually now is, is right next to the mitzvah that you are performing. The bit about you that isn't mitzvah related is now right next to the mitzvah because you're doing that mitzvah. Isn't that terrible? Did you put an asherah next to the mizbach, Hashem? You're doing the mitzvah, and yet the way you're doing the mitzvah brings an asherah close to the mizbach Hashem. It's an idea to think about. That's what the Mikdash Alevi really wants us to do. The Mikdash Alevi wants us to think about how we could get it right and how very often, or maybe only sometimes, we get it wrong. Continues the Mikdash Alevi with a quote from the Gemara. Says the Gemara. It's Gemara in Sanhedrin, of Zion, Omid Beis. Omar Ishlokish, Ishlokish said, Anybody who appoints a Dayan, a rabbinic judge, who is not appropriate for that position, do you know what it's like? It's like somebody who plants an Asherah, an Avodah Zorah tree, in amidst the Jewish people. Shenema. Do you know why? Taposuk. Taposuk in the Torah. Tupsukim actually. That's how we begin the parsha. Vesomichleim. Very close to that. The first posuk tells you appoint a judge. And then it says. But don't plant an Asherah tree next to the Mizbach Hashem. Amar of Ashi. Says Rav Ashi, "V'mokem sheish tamidech achomim, kilu not to eat some mizbeach, shenema eat some mizbeach Hashem alekecha." It's a wonderful Gemara. It's a beautiful Gemara, and the Balaturim says the Mikdash Alevi adds a little element to it. Kasav remez ledivrei Chazal halolu. He writes a remez as the as the Balaturim often does. He comes up with a bit of a gematria that helps us kind of correlate these two things because often the Gemara says that because it says one thing here and very close by it says something else that there must be a correlation between the two and here the Balaturim comes up with the Gematria that underscores that idea. Listen to what he says. The word Asherah Aleph Shein Reish Hei Oile Begematria Kamei Hamilim Dayan Hogun The word Asherah which translated means Avodazoratri, if you take the numerical value of its letters, it's equal to Dayan She'ena Hogun. Dayan, a judge, She'ena Hogun, that is not appropriate, that is not a good person. So you see that Asherah and Dayan She'ena Hogun do have a relationship numerically, and in fact the Torah places them close together to say that those who appoint a Dayan, She'ena Hogun, it's as if they're putting an Asherah amidst the Jewish people. We should really need to explain. Why is it that the Torah compares an inappropriate uh, Dayan, judge, rabbinic judge, Dafkal Asherah, specifically 
to an Anavoida Zora tree. Why would choose that? Why wouldn't the Torah have chosen another object that is disgusting, some other object that is inappropriate, as the comparison object to a Dayan who is placed in amongst the Jewish people? For example, some type of idol that has been formed from wood or from stone. Anything similar to that. Why specifically Asherah? And we've got this incredible gematria that, that kind of creates this kesha, this link between an Asherah and a Dayan She'en Hogan. What is it that brings these two things together? Says the Mikdash Alevi Venira Loimashe Yeshnei Hevdal Mahusi Ben Asherah Levein Sha'ar Sugi Havoidazara. Do you know what, says the Mikdash Alevi? There is a very specific, very tangible difference between an Asherah version of a pagan idol and the ordinary pagan idol that we're familiar with. If you've ever walked through the British Museum or any of the great museums around the world and you've seen these ancient objects. That, um, that were worshipped, stone idols or wooden idols that were placed in front of people and people bowed down to them and served them. There's a great difference to those and a living tree that is considered an idol that's considered an object of we- uh, pagan worship. Let's face reality. You take a hunk of stone and you chip away at it until it comes into some type of form. It looks like an animal or a person or whatever it's going to look like. And you stick it in front of the temple or church that these people are worshipping in. And they bow down to it. Nothing changes about it. It never changes expression. It never changes size. It doesn't grow. It doesn't shrink. It stays exactly the same. However it was originally formed, whenever it was completed by the person who chipped away at it, that's how it looks forevermore. And therefore, it doesn't increase, it doesn't expand any element of the impurity that it contains. But an Asherah tree is not like that. Somebody plants an Asherah, it's a little sapling. What happens to the sapling? Do you know what happens to a tree? You plant the sapling. And it comes out a little bit out of the ground, and then there's a branch here, a branch there, a leaf. Sometimes there's fruit, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and suddenly you're looking at a massive tree that's 20, 30 feet high. And it has fruit, and you take the fruit, and you worship, a person would worship those fruit. It expands and increases the borders of impurity. It grows and grows and grows and continues to expand. As it continues its life, it expands and becomes more impressive and larger and therefore has a greater impact. Not the same as the idol, which once it's completed, never grows and never becomes more than it was originally. So too with a dying that is an inappropriate person to be a leader and an adjudicator and a rabbinic judge. It's not just that he is disgusting and disgusting and everything about him, that uh, you know, he disgusts us specifically because it's not just the fact that he is in and of himself disgusting. He's a leader. He's a rabbi. He's a dayan. People are going to learn from him. They're going to take his example. They're going to behave like him. And he is a disgrace to his position. That is an asherah. The Tumah, the impurity, will continue to grow and expand because he's a person of influence. Oid oid, more and more. All of these fruit, all of the products of his activities. And then those who learn from him will teach others and it will continue 
to reverberate and percolate throughout the system. Kulam nizkofim lechayvasoi. This is what's so scary. You know what? Everything that these people do that is inappropriate and disgusting to Hashem will be His responsibility. Anybody who misbehaves as a, re- as a result of His misbehavior, that's the Asherah. The Asherah has caused the fruit and the fruit's fruit to continue to grow long after the Asherah may have withered away. That Asherah's products continues to contaminate the, uh, the society on which that Dayan had an influence. And finally, this is absolutely beautiful. Talking about the future and what might happen, they go and they worship other gods, Elohim Achirim, bow down to them, Vilashemesh to the sun, Oileyoreach to the moon, Oilachold Savashamaim to any of the many heavenly or the celestial uh, stars or whatever it is that exists that floats in the sky in front of our eyes at night. Ashaloitzi Visi that I have not commanded. That's what the Possek says, that in the future at some point the Jewish people may drift away from their duties and obligations in terms of monotheism and may be distracted and pulled away and they may worship other gods including the sun and the moon and the stars. That's what might happen. These celestial bodies may draw them away from their service of God, of Hashem. And Rashi says, a parish Rashi, I didn't command you to worship them. I commanded you to worship me. I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. We say every day, Hashem is one. There's nothing else. There's no one else. That is our duty. That is our obligation to remain true to him and to his purpose. And now we're going to talk about a very interesting story that occurred. And it's a Gemara Megillah Daftes. Tell us a story. told me Hamelech, told me the king, the Pharaoh, He took together seventy-two elders, Zakenim, the Tamide Chachomim, the great scholars of the Jewish people. And he put them in seventy-two separate chambers. And he didn't say what he was doing. He didn't actually tell them why he wanted them. He just told them he wants their scholarship. And then he instructed them. He went into each and every one of them and he spoke to them. And this is what he said. Please write for me the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu. You know, you have uh, somebody in your religion called Moshe Rabbeinu, and he gave you the Torah. He gave you the Chamisha Chumshe Torah that we have. Please write it for me. But he wanted it in Greek because he didn't understand Hebrew. He wanted it written in Greek. Hashem did a miracle that each and every one of the 72 scholars thought the same way, and they had this inspiration from up above. And the way they translated the Torah meant that the translation emerged totally uniform, even though some things were slightly changed, or let's put it this way, a parish, some type of commentary was added. It wasn't a straight translation, but something else was included. And there's various differences that um, can be found in the text of the Septuagint as it's known. That's the um, translation of the 72 elders and the Torah in its original Hebrew. Here's one of them. This is what Rashi says. Rashi is taking it from the Gemara Megillah. 
they added the word Le'ovdom. I didn't command you to worship them. And the reason why they added that word in, the Mikdash HaLevi explains it. Kloima. When the Zekenim, the elders, translated the Torah into Greek for Ptolemy the king, God inspired them. Somehow, they all had the same thought. Each one of them added, in Greek obviously, the extra word la'ovdom after that you shouldn't think, as it were, that that you shouldn't ever imagine that the reason why it says Hashem Loitzivisi is not because Hashem didn't want to create the sun, the moon, and the stars. Hashem Loitzivisi, I didn't command them, as it were, to come into being. Because that may somehow lead you to become a heretic, because you may think that there are things that exist in creation which God didn't want to be there. So they added Loovdom, I didn't command you to. Uh, to, uh, uh, to worship them. I didn't want you to worship those things. I want you to worship me directly. I just want to say a few words about Ptolemy, who he was. Ptolemy II Philadelphus, that's who he was. He was also known posthumously after he died. He was known as Ptolemy the Great. He was a pharaoh of Egypt from the year 284 until the year 246 BC. So he was a great king in the 3rd century BC. He was the son of the first Ptolemy, who was the Macedonian Greek general, who worked in, as the, one of the leaders of the army, the army of the great uh, Greek king, Alexander the Great, who founded, and this Ptolemy I founded the Ptolemaic kingdom after the death of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great um, died in, if I remember correctly, 323 BC, and Ptolemy the Great, the, sorry, Ptolemy the First Ptolemy became the king of Egypt at that point in time, or sometime very shortly afterwards, when the generals of Alexander the Great divided up his empire into four separate realms. He took over North Africa. And Ptolemy II, Ptolemy the Great's mother, was Queen Bernice. She was originally from Macedonia in northern Greece. And during his reign, the material and literary splendor of the Alexandrian court was at its absolute height, at its pinnacle. He promoted and paid for, that was the key thing, the very famous museum and the even more famous library of Alexandria, which is um, in the, at the, uh, the estuary of the Nile River. So we've heard the Gemara Megillah, but the first reference to this incredible story about the 72 elders who came to translate the Torah, the Chamisha Chumshe Torah, is in something called the Letter of Aristeus to Philocrates, a very famous Greek text, and it dates to around the 3rd or maybe the early 2nd century BC. So it's, it's contemporaneous with this story of, as to when it happened. And the letter's author claims to be a courtier, somebody who worked in the court of Ptolemy II. The king, he says, was urged by his chief librarian, Demetrius of Phaleron, to have the Tanakh, the whole Tanakh, eventually it was all translated, but initially only the Torah was translated, translated into Greek. So that people who were only Greek speakers and didn't understand Hebrew could also have access to the ancient wisdom of the Jews. And the king was very, very excited, the letter says. He was very excited by the idea and he sent expensive gifts to the temple, to the Beis Amikdosh in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem, along with trusted messengers who were instructed to bring the scholars and translators back from Yerushalayim to Alexandria. And the Kohen Godel, the high priest, chose six men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is a total of 72 people. You do the math. And when the translators arrived in Alexandria, the king began crying, weeping with joy. 
And for the next seven days, he posed a whole bunch of philosophical questions to the 72 scholars, the elders, and they answered, and all the answers are recorded in the letter of Aristeas to Philocrates. You can look it up online, the text is online, I'm just summarizing it here for you. Then the 72 translators were told that they have to complete their task, and their task was given to them, and they completed it in exactly 72 days. And the Jews of Alexandria, who, by the way, couldn't speak Hebrew and didn't understand Lashon HaKodesh, they couldn't understand the language. Now, suddenly, they're given the Torah in a language that they understand. And they requested copies of this translation, so that it shouldn't just be in the library in Alexandria, but that they should have copies as well. And in fact, they gave a curse, says this letter, to anybody who changes any word of this translation, and then the translators were given great rewards, gifts, and they went home to Eretisrael. That's the story as recorded in the letter of Aristeus to Philocrates, and it's a contemporaneous account of this story. But we have a question here. Why is it that the Gemara records that certain aspects of the translation were changed? Why is it in this specific case in the Pasuk in our parsha, Asheloitzivisi, why was that changed to Asheloitzivisi Lovda? If it's true to say that people could make a mistake and think that the sun and the moon and the stars were not created by God, you might become a heretic if you translate it literally without understanding what it means. Why would the posuk have originally been delivered using a text that could mislead us? Why would the posuk not have said? In the first instance, the way it is that it appears in our Torah, why do we need the scholars, the 72 Zakenim in Alexandria to add that to the Greek translation? Why does Rashi need to appear here as a commentary to tell us what it really means if there is a danger here that it can lead to us not believing in Hashem in the way that we should? Why is it different in the Torah? Why does it appear in the Torah in such a way that could have misled us? We could have put any kind of wording. Hashem knows the words, knows Loshna Kodesh perfectly. He could have put wording in there that might not have been a platform for heresy apicrosis. The Nira Loima says the Mikdash Alevi, perhaps we can answer as follows. There's actually another way that we can look at this posuk, which gives us an additional understanding of what it is that is being conveyed. And it's not the way that Rashi interprets it, or the way that was, uh, uh, that was translated in Alexandria when um, Ptolemy HaMelech asked them to translate Chamisha Chumshe Torah. And that's why it's written specifically with this wording in the Torah. There's something that we could wonder about. Why is it that people, I guess in ancient times, there may be still people today, why are there people who worship the sun and the moon? Surely the earth, which is the source of crops, and the source of everything that sustains us in life. You never heard that there was an ancient um, pagan god, the earth, from which plants grow. The sun, the moon, everyone's busy with the sun and the moon, but no one's busy with the earth underneath our feet. Why would that be the case? Ha'hezber hu, says the Mikdash Alevi, the explanation is, Do you know why people worship the sun and the moon? Because they have no control over them and they know that they never will. They know that nothing that they do could ever influence whatever it is that the sun does or the moon does. 
They are, they are beyond the reach of humanity. And therefore, they are objects of awe, objects of fascination, objects of veneration. And that's why people don't worship the ground. Something that they work with, that they're involved with. The fact is, we know we plant it in. We know, generally speaking, as long as it rains, we can have the crops that come out of the ground. We've got control, as we think. We have control over what happens in the ground. We can take care of ourselves. It's not something that you would worship. You don't worship something that you control. You worship something that you don't control, that you think is greater than the sum of your parts. And that's why they worship the sun and the moon. They're in the heavenly realm, they're in the sky, they're far away, they're in space. You can't reach them, you can't touch them, you can't get to them, you have no control over them. We have no control over the way they operate, we can't change their orbit, we can't do anything about them, not their strength, not their weakness, not any aspect of them. So now we have an explanation as to why it is that people worship the sun and the moon, but don't worship the ground, which you would think has an equal influence on it, at least an equal impact on human life. And this is a lesson that the Torah teaches us when it says, These words, with reference, to those who worship the sun and the moon and the celestial bodies, teach us this important lesson. A person might think in their heart, Seeing as you have no control over the sun, the moon and the stars, Therefore that somehow conveys to us their superpower, because you have no power over them. And that's why you've got to show deference to them. You've got to worship them. They've got to be treated with somehow some type of some spiritual reverence. You've got to treat them like a god. So the Torah warns you, don't behave that way. Don't do that. And in fact, it tells you that the punishment for those who disobey this commandment is going to be worse because they have this thought in their mind. That's exactly why they're going to be treated so harshly by God, by Hashem. The Kan Nadgish and we've got one to focus on a particular point. It's very important to define the reason why people worship idols. Why, why is it that people worship, not idols, but things which they feel have this incredible power over them that they have no power over? themselves. If you understand why that should be, but when you realize what those people are doing, and by the way, today the great idol is science. There's certain aspects of science over which people have no control, and they think somehow they have control, it has control over us, and you worship it or you treat it with greater respect than it deserves. It deserves no respect. The only thing that deserves respect and, and requires worship is Hashem. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Nothing else. But listen carefully. It's actually not sensible. It makes no sense to worship anything besides for Hashem, even those things over which you think you have no power. If somebody has in them a thought in their mind, you know what, I'm going to worship the Tzva Shomayim, whatever that may be in your time, but those things over which you have no power, which you think have power over you, because I can't control them. 
And therefore they're greater than me. They're greater than the sum of me, than the sum of anyone. These are things which are worthy of worship. What a bunch of nonsense. Shekain. Because the idea is that the heavenly sphere is beyond his control. It's not true at all. That thing that you think you don't control, in fact, it's changeable. It's something which evolves over time. Look, says the Mikdash Alevi. In our days, we have seen that people have reached the moon. In 1969, Armstrong landed on the moon, a small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. There they were. Had you told somebody 50 years before, somebody's going to get to the moon. What a bunch of nonsense. And yet it happened. How do we know what humanity is going to be capable of in the future? So this idea that something is out of your control and therefore is worthy of worship is a time-sensitive idea. Because if time elapses, you might find that that thing that you thought you had no power over and has power over you, in fact, you do have power over. And it's not the case at all that it's stronger than you because you can get there and can do things there. And we have now power over space. We can get into space. We can do things that... No human being ever imagined was possible even 10 years ago, never mind 50 or 100 or 1,000. The only thing that exists that no one in the world ever will have power over and has power over us beyond our imagination or our ability to understand Hashem has power over us. God has power over us. Above anything that's above us. More than the Shemesh, more than the Yoreach, more than the Tzva Shamaim, Velochein, Rak Loi Levadoi, Roi Venochein Lavoi. And that's why it is only towards Him that we direct our worship and we direct our service. And with that, we'll leave it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching.